Tiwari tries to mask his intentions as a genuine academic exercise, but is actually entirely polemical. He employs the typical tactic of the leftists, plausible fallacy. It all appears very genuine to those who don't know the background and history of the period. But what he portrays is completely removed from the truth. It is actually malefide. The entire case that he makes against Subhash Bose, he summarizes as follows. Bose thought that without Muslim approval, neither can Swaraj be won. And what is more, nor was it worth winning without their support. The onus of Hindu-Muslim unity lied on the shoulder. What's with this English? Lay on the shoulders of the Hindus alone, and the Hindus should be willing to make unlimited and extreme sacrifices to that end. Only by adjusting to the Muslim sensibilities and removing their misgivings was it possible to achieve that unity. And therefore, appeasing Muslims should be made a core and visible part of any program, which is what he conscientiously belaboured to do. Again, that English belaboured throughout his political career. In his hostility to Hindutva, also he was quite virulent, just like the other Marxist secularist. He constantly labels Bose as a Marxist secularist. This is a tall order. But let us take a look at the grounds he bases these accusations on. The broader point on how Tiwari's views are completely erroneous, Chandrachu, Ghosh and Anurthar have already made. I will take it down on the finer points. How this fellow builds his pickery on a labyrinth of such lies, certain examples of which I just showed you. Now, his series on Subhash Bose begins with the title, The Seeds of Islam Islamophile Secularism. And he begins by selectively implicating personalities associated with Bose. First on target, Chitranjan Das, Bose's mentor for his uh, initial four years in Congress. And the charges? Charge number one, Khilafat. The very first point marks Tiwari's intention. Bose is not even present in India at the time these monumentally foolish blunders are being effected by the Congress, pushed by Gandhi, who had by this time started to act as a dictator, manipulating every Congress decision. The Congress Khilafat Alliance came about in June 1920, and Bose appears on the scene uh, one year later, a fresh 24-year-old in July 1921. And just a month after his arrival, the horrific fallout of Congress's Khilafat Dalians has fallen on the hapless Hindus of Malabar. Tiwari seems very keen to show complicity of Chitranjan Das in Gandhi's Khilafat cause. Why? Transmitted guilt. Subhash Bose is held accountable not for what he has done, but since he would subsequently be put under Chitranjan Das's tutelage, Therefore, somehow Bose is guilty of the mindset behind Khilafat politics. But what exactly does he say Chitranjan Das is guilty of? He says Chitranjan Das exclusively carried out an over-enthusiastic campaign for the holy cause of Khilafat. Now, the fact of the matter is that after the very first Congress Khilafat meet in Amritsar, when the Congress decided to lend the full support of its power prestige and organization to the Khilafat uh, cause, a deputation was sent conveying the address of this conference to the Viceroy 
on January 19, 1920, which was represented by all these people who Sarvesh Tiwari has merrily exonerated, to the exception of Chitranjan Das, Pandit Madan Mohan Malviya, Bipin Chandrapal, Lala Lajpat Rai, Vallabhai Patel, and more, Swami Shraddhanand, Motilal Nehru, and many other Congress leaders. And it carried all their signatures. This was much before the terms of the Khilafat non-cooperation were decided in March 1921. Chitranjan Das is in no way involved until this time. From 1917 to 1921, he was dedicated entirely to the Bengal Provincial Congress. And immediately after being elected president in 1920, he landed in jail. Tiwari says that these leaders who went along with Gandhi's Khilafat were actually against him. That's true enough. Quite a few leaders, including Jawaharlal Nehru, had uh, strong reservations about this whole deal. Tiwari gives a roundabout explanation of why Lala Lajpat Rai got talked into it. Lala Lajpat Rai finally acquiesced on the logic that if Britain came into possession or control of larger Muslim domains, it would only mean more Muslim influence on British policies, more Muslim recruitment in armed forces, and undue pressure on India and Hindus. Now, I don't know how that explains it, but he gives the impression that Chitranjan Das was all through gango about it. Now, here's a quote from Chitranjan Das in a letter to Lala Lajpat Rai. I'm not afraid of seven crores of Muslims here in Hindustan, but I think the seven crores of Hindustan plus the armed hosts of Afghanistan Central Asia, Arabia, Mesopotamia, and Turkey will be irresistible. Here is a clear statement from Das, expressing skepticism about uh, the Khilafat and its pan-Islamist dimension. He was, in fact, a forceful opponent of pan-Islamism. So, what was happening is this. All these leaders were exchanging notes among themselves, expressing their misgivings. But fact is, in the Khilafat non-cooperation, they all went along. They were all visionary men, but they had their blind moments and at that point they all got bulldozed by Gandhi. Some of the quotes uh, Tiwari uses of Vipin Chandrapal, Sharat Chandra Chattopadhyay and Lala Lajpat Rai on the Hindu-Muslim issue trying to offset Chitranjan Das's actions were said in different contexts, not on the Khilafat uh, question. R.C. Majumdar describes three types of persuasions of the congressmen at this time. Those blindly devoted to Gandhi, Patel types who thought Gandhi could do no wrong, others who passively gave in and yet others who voiced concerns but thought something good might actually come out of it. In the meeting in March 1920, finalizing the scheme and stages of the Khilafat non-cooperation movement were Gandhi. Ajmal Khan, Maulana Azad, Shaukat Ali, and Lala Lajpat Rai. Gandhi's ideas were adopted by the Khilafat Conference, which met at Madras on April 17, 1920. In June, another set of meetings was held with the Khilafat Committee, attended by Gandhi, Motilal Nehru, Lala Lajpat Rai, Tej Bahadur Sapru, Bipin Chandrapal, Madan Mohan Malviya, Satya Murthy, Raja Gopalachari. Jawaharlal Nehru, Chintamani, No Chitranjan Das. All the same, 
many of these congressmen kept expressing uh, discomfort. But in the end, it was Tilak who gave his stamp of approval to the Congress resolution on the Khilafat program. Majumdar says the following about this whole case. The attitude of Tilak towards the non-cooperation movement initiated by Gandhi deserves more than a passing notice as it is hailed by many that but for Tilak's death shortly before the Calcutta session of the Congress in 1920, Gandhi would not have been able to carry his resolution on non-cooperation. Tilak did not attend these uh, Hindu-Muslim joint meetings, but in the end seems to have assented to the resolutions. And Majumdar clarifies, that Tilak's concurrence refers to the Khilafat program and not to the general Congress proposal of non-cooperation. It becomes clearer from the following quotes. To Shaukat Ali, Tilak says, about Hindus and Muslims, I will sign anything that Gandhi suggests because I have full faith on him in the question. He says to Mukhtar Ahmad Ansari, the Muslims could always count on his support in the course of the mild campaign which they were going to start under the leadership of Mahatma Gandhi. And Tilak's words conveyed by Dr. Chotiram, he had no objection to his advising Hindus to join the movement, provided Mohammedans are sincerely bent upon non-cooperation with government. Anyone who reads these quotes would uh, think that Tilak was all for the Khilafat non-cooperation movement. But actually he wasn't. He somehow seems to have resigned to it. So here's the actual truth. Hindu leaders at this point did get carried away with Gandhi's lobbying and learnt a bitter lesson. Yet another one for Hindus. Only a few leaders volubly opposed Gandhi at this time. Sir Shankaran Nair, Dr. D. R. Ambedkar, Annie Besant and Bipin Chandrapal who later refused to participate in the non-cooperation movement in general and on account of its hyphenation with the Khilafat issue in particular. But somehow, Sarvesh Tiwari stretches this to put the entire onus of collaboration with the Khilafat on Chitranjan Das. Also remember, Das has barely just joined the Congress at this time and Tiwari implies that his view has weighed in on all these Congress stalwarts of decades. And the best part, not only was Chitranjan Das not involved in any of this process, he actually opposed the Khilafat non-cooperation proposals of Gandhi in the Calcutta session uh, in September 1920. But yes, once it was approved by the Congress, Das appears to have thrown himself into it with sincerity. But his involvement was more on ground and limited to Bengal mobilizing people locally, building up the tremendous strength of volunteers for the movement, organizing hartals, boycotts, etc. But this had nothing to do with an enthusiasm for Khilafat. That was entirely Gandhi's baby. Charge number two. Sarvesh Tiwari says that Deshpandu Das and Post Brothers practically elbowed out this visionary Hindu and hardliner. He means Bipin Chandrapal. This is an extremely funny claim, considering Das's total stint in the Congress was less than six years, from 1917 to 1922. And in this was also the time that he spent in jail. 
Chitranjan Das had in fact a very close association with the Lal Valpal trio. His writings were published in Bande Mataram, that is Bipin Chandrapal's publication edited by Aurobindo Ghosh. They maintained contact all through. Uh, in his own journal, uh, Narayan Das used to publish writings of Sharat Chandra Chattopadhyay, Bipin Chandrapal and uh, Hari Prasad Shastri. Then Bipin Chandrapal left Congress in 1925-26 and Chitranjan Das has already departed from this world by then. Moreover, Das detached from the main Congress in December 1922 itself to form his uh, Swaraj party. Sharad Chandra Bose is also a member of the Swaraj party 1924 onwards and Subhash Bose was from the very beginning chanted to Bengal Congress. So how would they elbow out Bipin Chandrapal? Tiwari also says that Bipin Chandrapal seems to have been almost deleted from Bengali memory. This charges against the Bengali community. Don't know where he gets that idea from, but uh, Bengalis would gawk at this statement. From Bipin Chandrapal Road, Bipin Chandrapal Saranis at several places, Bipin Chandrapal Lodge, Hall, landmarks named after Pal are strewn all over Bengal. In Delhi's Chitranjan Park, half the landmarks are named after him. Bipin Chandrapal Mark, Bipin Chandrapal Clinic, Memorial Trust, Auditorium, Park, Library, several such named after Bipin Chandrapal. Every year they hold functions to uh, mark his birth anniversary, as also Chitranjan Das and other freedom fighters. I think there would be hardly any youth in Bengal who hasn't read Pal's autobiography, Shottar Bachur. Then his Soul of India, another book which is widely read in Bengal. Incidentally, from classes 8 to 10th, Bipin Chandrapal's thoughts and philosophy are taught in detail and students are required to write essays on this. It is part of the state board syllabus. Central government had a portrait of Bipin Chandrapal in the central hall after almost 60 years of independence. So, aisa abhaisa Bipin Chandrapal ko aap log bhool Bengali nahi bhool but why is Tiwari shoving the guilt of Gandhi's Khilafat debacle on Chitranjan Das? Any guesses? It is mission get Bose. Since Bose would some one and a half years after this episode be put under Chitranjan Das's wing and as Chitranjan Das is supposedly a Muslim appeaser, therefore Subhash Bose is too. This is the premise he is trying to build. Fact is that Chitranjan Das actually belonged to this faction that stood in opposition to Gandhian politics and autocracy. He was more of a revolutionary maker and used to fight cases for revolutionaries of the Anushilan party. This is the reason Gandhi put Subhash Bose under his wing. When Bose met Gandhi for the first time in July 1921, he openly talked about his fiery ideals and Gandhi thought, the quote above from Chitranjan Das that I gave earlier shows that he was also a very pragmatic man. He was clearly talking in terms of dealing with Muslims rather than flighty Hindu-Muslim unity fantasies. Which brings us to the issue of the Bengal Pact of 1923. Now within the Congress there was opposition not only to uh, the Khilafat liaison but also the idea of non-cooperation itself. 
these two issues were working in the politics of the time parallelly. A whole lot of people who opposed non-cooperation perceived prominent leaders like Annie Besant, G.S. Kharpade, Bipin Chandrapal, Surendranath Banerjee, Tej Bahadur Sapru, Madan Mohan Malviya, they left the party subsequently. Telak had already passed away by this time in August 1920. He also believed in what was termed responsive cooperation and was not a buyer of Gandhi's non-cooperation. Chitranjan Das was firmly in this camp. He advocated a thing called internal obstruction, also known as council entry program, which proposed gaining entry into the legislatures with a view to offering uniform, continuous and consistent obstruction to the government on vital issues. Though strongly opposed to the British and an advocate of the ancient Indian way of life, he as a matter of fact rejected ideas of political and economic development of India along western lines. But Government of India Act was a great opportunity. It gave some important areas of governance to Indians like agriculture, local government, health and education, all of which were uh, critical subjects for Indians. Now the problem in Bengal, religious demography, with Muslims 54% and Hindus 44% and as the posts were supposed to be elected councils. This was a peculiar problem in Bengal as well as Punjab. Punjab also had round about the same proportion of Muslims to Hindus. But there was also the factor of cultural bonds of Hindu Bengalis with Muslim Bengalis and Hindu Punjabis, naturally with Sikh Punjabis but also with Muslim Punjabis. And I will come to this point a little later. Unless one takes a stand like Jinnah that there cannot be any middle ground and no solution possible except partitioning the country. The singular recourse available uh, to the leaders that time was figuring out ways for the two communities to work together to arrive at a functional arrangement. Sarvesh Tiwari types and Shankar Sharan, even Sitaram Goel, keep going on and on about what Muslims are like. Look at their book, look at their ideology, look at the past. We know all that. Neither is the Islamic doctrine nor are Muslims going to go away. Muslims will continue to be a turbulent minority and a violent majority. And Muslim subnationalism will also always be there. The problem with these ideologues is that when they have ridden long enough on their ideology, they don't know what to do when they land on terra firma. You cannot wish away Muslims with Hindutva ideas. It is not that Shitranjan Das thought, as Tiwari claims, that freedom cannot be won without Muslims. Das doesn't say this at any point. Reality is, however, that Muslims are there and you have to manage this demography. Hindutva to bahut jarli. Ab aage, ke root ke jaoge, ke They have no plan how to achieve this united greater India. They just dream about it. Now in Bengal, though majority population was of Muslims, political power rested with the Hindus. All the educated, enlightened and empowered people were Bengali Hindus. The political and social life was dominated by them. This equation is what was threatened with the Government of India Act. The Hindus had to retain their position of dominance faced with this new prospect of electoral politics. 
The Bengal Muslim League was created at the behest of the British. Bose was not wrong about division created by British because he was not talking in some ideal terms, but what actually happened at the time of Bangabang. Viceroy Curzon partitioned Bengal on this pretext of providing rep greater representation to Muslims and it was favoured by them since it gave them a Muslim majority region in the eastern half and they would have catapulted to power due to sheer numbers. So, in December 1923, the Bengal Pact was drawn up, which made significant concessions towards the Muslim community, some of which appeared disadvantageous to Hindus, but these were not extravagant considering that they were proportionate to their population. This is the basis of democracy. Even if Hindus kept power in their hands, it would have left discontent festering, which boiled over at times in the form of rats and which gave the British the opportunity to create permanent fault lines. And don't please try to say that they did not do so, they definitely did. The idea was to give Muslims a fair representation to form a federation of Muslims and Hindus, to come together and cooperate, so that the question of partition did not arise. Das wanted to integrate them rather than having two hostile demographies perpetually at war. He therefore opposed the idea of separate electorates, which eventually became the basis of partition. But this was outvoted by Hindus because they feared they'd be outnumbered in most constituencies. But it is foolish to evaluate the provisions of the Bengal Pact against today's considerations based on what has already happened, that's the partition, rather than in the backdrop of those times when partition was merely a prospect that most people were not even ready to look at. The Bengal Pact therefore addressed head on some of the flashpoints that had been the cause of violence and riots in the past, like playing of music, processions, slaughter by Muslims, language, etc. It was not a woolly-headed dream of bhaichara or appeasement. It was a straightforward deal, point for point, addressing the issues between the two communities at the level of the leadership. Both had some and both had to concede some. A section of Hindus protested that time against the provisions. Like there was one provision uh, whereby Muslims were assured that their practice of cow slaughter on Eid will not be hindered and in return, slaughter will not be practiced in any way offending to Hindu sensibilities. This allowance aroused the indignance of Hindus. Though again, this was a bit of a futility since in British India, cow slaughter was as it is legal. Large-scale slaughter was carried out to cater to uh, Europeans and for supplying to the army. It made no sense imposing bans only on Muslims and for that one day. Besides, it was not an extraordinary concession since there were such compromises at other places too. For example, there is a precedent from Ayodhya in 1915. There a similar agreement was formalized between Hindus and Muslims and the latter agreed to carry out their butchery practice beyond a place called Jalpanala which marked the periphery of the city. And the proportion of Muslims in Ayodhya is far less than in Bengal. 
Moreover, the Bengal Pact specified that except on the occasion of Eid al-Adha, no cow slaughter will take place out of respect for India's Hindu community and this was accepted by the Muslims. Yet, uh, the Bengal Pact did evoke outrage from some quarters and finally, the National Congress did not pass it. But it brought tremendous support of the Muslims to the Swaraj Party and made the Muslim League redundant in Bengal. In the bargain, the dominant position in the provincial council and in Bengal politics was retained by the Hindus, in spite of absolute Muslim majority. Losing this would have been a far greater loss because until that time, Muslim League had no representation among the population. They were insignificant. This is the reason Suravardi, whose father was one of the founding members of Muslim League, had joined the Cong uh, Swaraj party instead. Was the experiment successful? Like how? Unlike the Khilafat fiasco, Swaraj party's success at the provincial legislative council was remarkable, winning majority seats in the councils in 1924. The Swarajists also captured power in the Calcutta Municipal Corporation and thus became the first popularly elected mayor of Calcutta. This was when Subhash Post was appointed CEO of Calcutta. Swaraj party inflicted repeated defeats on the government on vital issues and ensured the demise of British bureaucracy in its earlier form in Bengal. Not only did they win hands down, they managed to keep Bengal in remarkable peace and communal harmony for the next two to three years, in a time when scores of Hindu-Muslim riots would happen all over the country each year. And in spite of the Bengal Pact being defeated by the Congress, Hindu-Muslim cooperation continued attested by many contemporary accounts. Even after Chitranjan Das's death, in the beginning of the 1926 riots, we find Muslim leaders like Suravardi participating in pacification campaigns. By the middle of the year, however, he had turned so virulently communal that the government was considering externing him. So look at Chitranjan Das's ingenuity and discernment that he managed to keep such extreme tendencies going together for almost three years without friction. Tiwari says that as the CEO of Calcutta Cooperation, Subhash Pose outdid Chitranjan Das, who had only proposed 55% communal reservation, that too in Muslim majority districts, which Calcutta was not. Subhash Pose appointed in Calcutta Cooperation 25 Mohammedans out of 33 vacant posts not on the grounds of any merit, but for their creed. First of all, Subhash Post was CEO of Calcutta for barely two to three months. Moreover, this was not his doing. It was a clause in the Bengal Pact itself, that until the 55% strength in appointments was achieved, 80% would be earmarked for Muslims in Calcutta only, to make up for the overall deficiency in Bengal, because in the countryside there were hardly any educated Muslims. They constituted largely the poor peasantry. Bose was just explaining the official position since the Bengal Pact had been passed by the Bengal Provincial uh, Congress Committee. This is not the same as appeasement today, which is disproportionate privileges as post-independence governments have been doing, including your Hindutva heroes. In fact, the Bengal Pact laid down clearly that no religious community will be given undue preference 
no government or public funds will be devoted to any religious institution or purpose. Now, you can keep imagining an ideal prospect according to Hindutva, but have we been able to take off even the loudspeakers of the mosques till date? You haven't been able to rectify the situation after most Muslims leaving India after 70 years of independence, of which around one and a half decades were of your beloved Hindutva governments. And you are singling out Chitranjandas, who was faced with a 55% Muslim majority population. He did not believe in the composite culture, Mirage. He just had a task at hand. He was a remarkably clear-sighted, practical, yet a constructive uh, man. He is still widely regarded in Bangladesh. They mark his anniversary every year. In fact, uh, from the events, it becomes clear that in Bengal, the fragile communal situation was hinged on the personality of Chitranjan Das alone. The first major riots in Bengal happened after his death, the 1926 riots. Sarvesh puts undue emphasis on these riots to prove God knows what point. Riots have been a regular feature of the Hindu-Muslim relationship since 18th century. To give an idea of the situation that time, since 1923, there were over 100 riots officially recorded, clustered mainly around Bombay, Punjab, Delhi, the United Provinces and Bihar, out of which 31 had been counted from the beginning of 1926 till 22nd August of that year, when this particular series of riots began in Bengal. 91 riots were there between 1923 and 1927 in Uttar Pradesh alone. So what are you even talking about? In fact, a red sheet uh, that was uh, being circulated during the 1926 Bengal riots called to memory several previous recent riots in Kohat, Ludhiana, Meerut, Saharanpur, Ajmer, Kanpur, Lucknow, Allahabad and Calcutta. So I don't know what really is the point proven here. Then he brings up the case of Tarakeshwar Satyagraha. Tarakeshwar is an ancient shrine and a medieval temple in Hooghly district of Bengal, which was in the hands of the Giri lineage of sannyasis. Tiwari uses very cunning rhetoric to appeal to the popular sentiment of Hindus against the government control of temples, which is a sour point in today's politics. In order to portray the Tarakeshwar movement as Chitranjan Das, along with his protege Bose, hell-bent on a secular takeover of Tarakeshwar temple, which was foiled, thank God, by the Bengal Brahman Sabha. The poor Mahant was made to step down by the Congress. I cannot imagine how can one distort facts to this extent, to defame a popular movement by devotees, to regain their place of worship against a veritable villain of a Mahant in league with an oppressive and alien British government. Remember, Congress is not government at this time. They had just marginal authority over some, barely four to five administrative councils. An accurate comparison would be, in fact, the Sabarimala devotees movement against the communist government in Kerala. Sole exception being that the priests in Tarakeshwar were in cahoots with the uh, British government. And Sabrimala movement was to safeguard against secular liberalism, whilst in Tarakeshwar it was against libertinism. 
This movement started sometime in April, May 1924, when two saints, Swami Vishwananda and Swami Satchidananda, took the initiative on behalf of the devotees to remove the glaring aberrations that had crept into the management of this age-old religious institution, turning it into a den of corrupt and immoral activities and against the oppression suffered by pilgrims visiting the shrine. The Mahans at the helm of affairs, especially Madhav Chandragiri and uh, Satish Chandragiri, were said to have been the embodiments of irresponsible power and sensuality. So, resentment had been building up as a genuine reaction against the abuses of the later Mahans. And Swami Vishwananda had been on one previous occasion mercilessly beaten up by the Tarakeshwar Mahans goons for standing up to him. They formed an organization of sannyasis called Mahavirtal, which then formally approached the Bengal Provincial Congress with a signed appeal to start a non-violent Satyagraha. They specifically alluded to the Akali movement and SGPC's correspondence with Gandhi seeking permission to begin Satyagraha in order to wrest control of their sites from the Udasi Mahans. And the details of immorality and misappropriations by the last Mahant of Tarakeshwar, Dandi Swami Satish Chandragiri, behind this unrest are no less shocking, including appropriating the estates of the trust as a private property and lording over it like a zamidar. He lived a luxurious life moving around on elephants and horses, a total debauch who was said to have given up his commitment to the injunctions of Brahmacharya. He was a giri only in name. He had lakhs worth of jewellery stashed away in banks and he had received the title of Raja from the British government. He had a private army of Gurkhas known as Birbhatradal and hired goons to terrorize the tenants of his estate, students and shopkeepers. His hirelings used to block the pilgrims access to the temple to extort money from them and he was notorious for violating the modesty of women pilgrims. Sorry if this sounds like a Bollywoodish villain, but unfortunately this is what it was. These later Tarakeshwar Mahans were infamously corrupt and this was not the first time that they had been involved in such shameful scandals. There was a previous case a couple of decades before this, very famous by the name Tarakeshwar affair, also known as the Elokeshi affair, wherein a respectable wife who had gone there seeking treatment for infertility had been raped by the chief man. It culminated in a horrific case of honor killing. And Tiwari is making a case for these profligates. Ye to in Mahashaya sense of dharma hai. Das and Subhash Pose, when the present case was brought to their notice, went to the place on a fact-finding mission in April 1924. And thereafter, a formal report was made. The Mahavitaal had also written separately to Hindu Mahasabha on April 3rd, 1924. And independent inquiries made by a committee instituted by the Hindu Sabha of uh, Bada Bazaar also referred to the illegal exactions by the agents of the Mahant for, from the pilgrims, uh, vendors and residents of the pilgrim town as well as two cases of violation of women visiting the place of pilgrimage. So, all these charges were confirmed by the 
Hindu Mahasabha. Subhash Bose then wrote to the provincial Hindu Sabha based on the findings to take up the issue, failing which the Bengal Congress Committee would have to bring itself in. And hereafter, there is no involvement of Subhash Bose in this affair. He is not there in any capacity in any of the committees or reports. So, offices of Mahavir Dal were established at Tarakeshwar and Calcutta and a committee was made of members of the Bengal Hindu Sabha, Brahman Sabha and Mahavir Dal. They also had the support of the community of saints, among them Pandit Dharanath Bhattacharya and the Samkhya master Vedanta Tirtha Sri Sharachandra. Other temples also gave support, notably Balaji Dev Temple. And the Akali set up a langar khana for the protesters. The Congress provided logistical support, but they were not directly involved at this stage. Basically, it was a religious reform movement and not a political movement. Satyagraha started in earnest for free access of devotees to the temple, for restoring worship according to Shastras and to ensure the dignity of female pilgrims, a massive democratic movement to reclaim the temple, which had been turned into a huge private fief by the Mahant. The Mahant responded by setting his army upon the people. He summoned the British government to his aid, which was followed by brutally repressive measures, shooting, jailing of a number of devotees, mercilessly beaten up in custody, including 14 minors in Bankura jail. Several lives were lost. This was when at the request of Mahavir Dal, the Bengal Provincial Congress Committee actively got involved because they couldn't handle it any longer. But Sarvesh Tiwari, of course, finds the remark of Lord Lytton more trustworthy, who dismissed it as a colossal hoax. The same Lytton who made the smirking remark that Indian village women complaining of rape by British police were lying to smear the police. He was, of course, made to withdraw his remark. But these are the kind of sources used by Tiwari. Far from taking over the temple, Das clearly stated that he would be no party to any settlement which will not protect the people of Tarakeshwar or those who stood, stood by a true religious spirit against the Mahant. The temple and the debtor property, property devoted to the deity, must also be protected. Tiwari says that Gandhi had to intervene to stop Chitranjan Das from taking over the temple. Again, plain lie. One Subodh Krishna Basu, identifying himself as the secretary of the Hindu Temple Reform League, had sent a telegram to the governor, the viceroy and to Gandhi, praying their intervention since after the publication of Deshbandhu Das's message to adopt Satyagraha, Riot and violence started this morning in Tarakeshwar temple. Public apprehends repetition of Chori Chora. This was found to be spurious and the man turned out to be a lucky of the month. So there was a verification campaign against Das, of course, planted by the Mahan's agents, accusing him of all and sundry, creating friction between landlords and tenants, portraying him as a proponent of the permanent settlement, calling him a Brahmo who wanted to do away with Hindu shrines, of taking political advantage of the struggle and using temple funds for his party. Canards along usual lines which Sriman Tripathi also eagerly circulates. 
but to wind up quoting das's own words on this i do not desire any friction between landlords and tenants i have opposed the idea of such class war from public platforms the question of the repeal of permanent settlement is an undesirable question to raise and in my opinion whatever steps are taken must be taken after the attainment of self government and even then only as a matter of agreement between landlords and tenants i am not a brahmo i am a hindu and i claim to be sincere it is absolutely untrue that i want to take up hindu shrines to finance my party my point of view is the hindu point of view i want the shrines to be purified and reformed i do not want to remove mahantship but to have a devout mahant appointed so that the service in the temple may be properly supervised and income applied to the good of the pilgrims and the locality by establishing such educational and charitable institutions as may be required for the good of the people in my opinion this is not politics but if it is so regarded i am not ashamed of it nor is it true that i want the mohanship to go to some bengali instead of a hindi speaking gentleman i do not wish to interfere in the slightest degree with the traditions of the particular sect to which the mohant belongs in the end chitranjan das wanted an independent trust of stakeholders created from among the community of devotees and worshippers to look after the affairs of the temple the temple as well as the estate along with other properties and effects would be considered as public properties managed by the committee alone and the word public here doesn't mean the government it means the people in general he had proposed a settlement whereby the incumbent mahant satish chandragiri would abdicate in favor of his chela prabhat chandragiri who would be under the control of the committee the settlement made provisions for the maintenance of the temple worship of the deity development of facilities at the pilgrimage charities undertaken by the committee and allowances for the outgoing incumbent as well as the future mahants everything except secular causes or nation building activities as tiwari claims these are outright malicious lies but the settlement was in the end opposed by the brahman sabha because they wanted a committee of brahmins to be interested with the running of the temple so brahman sabha and mahavir dal separately approached the government to appoint a receiver and this is when government intervention happened not by chitranjan das 